Welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode of The Field, we sit down with Kai Peterson, a transgender man who was recently released from a women's prison in Georgia. Kai was charged, convicted, and sentenced to 20 years in prison for defending himself against a sexual assault. In 2011, while walking home one night, Kai was attacked. In self-defense, he shot his assailant with a gun he carried for protection. The person ultimately died. A rape kit corroborated Kai's story, but nonetheless, his claim of self-defense didn't stand, and he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. It was only after significant media attention and community outrage that Kai's sentence was reduced and he was released. Kai shares about the challenges he faced as a trans man in the system, and also how his gender identity added an additional layer of challenge in his re-entry journey. As we close out Pride here in Toronto, having spent the month celebrating, it is important especially for those of us who consider ourselves allies to be aware of how far we still have to go, and of the ways in which our systems and society still fail so many in the 2S LGBTQIA community. With that, let's dive in. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Kai as much as I did. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock, and Blackwell. Castles has one of the largest business law practices in Canada and is a market leader serving all sectors for over 130 years. In keeping with the theme of Pride, I'm thrilled to have participated in this year's Pride and Remembrance Run in Toronto as a part of Team Castles, raising money for the Pride and Remembrance Association. To find out more about Castles, go to castles.com or on Twitter at Castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Thank you so much for joining us in the field. It's such a pleasure to sit down with you and was a real pleasure to speak to you the last time we had the opportunity. So where I would love to start is, can you just share with us a little bit about your childhood and what life was like for you growing up? From my childhood, I grew up living with uh, my grandmother until she passed. Um, then I went to stay with my mom and my three younger siblings. Um, my mom worked a lot, so, you know, I had to kind of grow up pretty quick. Um, I had to learn how to cook, you know, learn to do stuff in the house. And at some point, I think I was maybe 17. Things kind of got really hard for my family, so I had dropped out of school to start working to pretty much help my mom with my younger siblings. And it was, you know, it it was tough, but it was something that could be done. And I knew, you know, I had a lot of things that I could give, and I knew what I liked to do, and I liked to be outside. So I found little odd jobs working outside from cutting grass to help repairing roofs to whatever it was that I could do so I could make sure that my family had what they needed. And, you know, later on, I kind of realized that, you know, maybe I should have kind of stayed in school. But at this point, it's like I already done that now. You know, I went back and got my GED, so I feel great about that. But at the time, it was something that really needed to be done. So I had to step up and do it. Mm -hmm. And congratulations on your GED. Thank you. And so you're you're working and helping to support your family. And around the age of 20, you are attacked. You defend yourself against this attack and then 
ultimately are arrested and convicted for defending yourself. Is that sort of a fair assessment of what happened? Yes. Okay. And so you, at that point, are sentenced to how long? Um, I was sentenced to 20 to 15. You were sentenced to 20 and you, you ended up doing 15 years. They wanted me to do 15, but because I completed special programs and took a lot of classes, I was able to get out in almost nine years. Okay. And can you tell us, so typically we do things a little bit differently on this podcast and we sort of fast forward over time spent in prison because the focus on the, of the podcast is, is really on reentry, but in your case, there are some really important and problematic issues that we want to highlight that relate to your treatment in incarceration. So um, you are a transgender man. And when you were incarcerated, were you like, tell me about the facility that you were put in and your treatment in in prison? Um, the It was a female facility in I want to say Hawkinsville, Georgia. Um, it was actually terrible. <laughs> you know, that's just a nice way to put it. It was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first day getting off of the, the van, because we rode a, a van to the prison, it was like when we got out of the van and we, you know, got ready to go inside to have a, a shakedown shack you go into before you go make it to the actual prison. So, Upon entering that, I think one of the ladies that were, uh, you know, shaking us down, she was like, you know, I'm going to just let you know now, this is prison, your state property, you belong to us. And I was just looking like uh, I belong to myself. You know, some thinking in my head because I never really had anybody tell me that, not even in the, the county jail, which I sat in the county jail for 19 months, and I never had to experience that then, but I really can't talk much about that because most of the time when I was in county, they kept me medicated. So I slept a lot and I gained a lot of weight. So that was a, I guess that was their way of dealing with it. But going into the actual prison, it was terrible. Um, From getting off the bus, being yelled at, uh, being singled out, it was like, no one should have to go through that. But I guess that's just their way of trying to you know, keep people from, I guess, going back to prison, but it doesn't seem to stop anything because people still, you know, in and out of prison. Um, I had a lady come back in while I was still inside and she was like, oh, you got out. I was like, no, I never went anywhere. I've been here the whole time. She's like, oh, okay. And it's like, you know, and in Georgia, it's, it's crazy because they have a, a diagnostic center for, uh, females and they have one for males but they never really ask the right questions upon intake you know like how do you identify they never asked any of those questions none of that stuff didn't come until later on down the line and i had to constantly fight with them just to get what it was that i needed and they still didn't want to uh, provide it you know i was harassed i was you know thrown into solitary confinement on numerous occasions and it was just the way that they treat people and handle situations, it's just, it's terrible. Yeah, it is. And there are a couple of things that I want to pick up on there. One is 
you you had told me that you were put into solitary confinement and can you explain why that was well i was placed in it so many times it's it's i can just give you a list actually um i think one of the first times that i was uh, placed in there was i think i had got mail and i had like a ton of christmas cards and postcards because everyone was you know signing my petition doing the free kai campaign and all those things so I, I would get a bunch of mail sometimes and they felt like it was my fault that you know people had sent checks through the mail so i was placed into a lockdown for that they pretty much took my mail tried to make me send it back to the people but some of the people didn't put a, a return address on the mail so i had no way of sending it back but i was placed in solitary confinement for that also, once I actually started transitioning, they placed me in solitary confinement because in their mind, I will grow a penis. So that was their way of dealing with it. And I just didn't have any understanding because upon even starting the process, I had my family and uh, my business partner send in all the information as far as what would happen you know, and everything it is that they need to know because no one knew what it was. No one knew what transgender was, gender dysphoria. They didn't have any understanding. So I had all that paperwork sent in and they failed to read it. So, you know, after my first shot, uh, I was placed into lockdown. Like, you know, yeah, you I don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to keep you in here. And I'm like, no, nah, y'all can't keep me in here because I haven't done anything wrong. And you know everything that is going to happen with me taking this because I gave you the papers. I was like, did you not read them? Like every person has the paper from the uh, sergeants to the, the regular COs, the deputy warden, unit managers, everyone had the, the papers and no one, no one looked at it. So you provide them all with the paperwork to say, this is what hormone therapy is all about, and this is yes. what's going to happen, and this is what you need to know. Nobody reads it. And this is after how long did it take you to fight to even be able to start this therapy? Um, I think I started with them, I want to say, in 2000, either 14 or 15 because in 2013, honestly, in 2013, I was just doing more, more and more research because I wanted to know everything there was that I needed to know. I didn't want to, you know, start something and then that not be what it was that I needed for myself. So I wanted to do all the research. So in 2014, um, the warden at the time, you know, I had got everything sent in and the warden at the time, you know, I told her, I was like, you know, this is what's going on. And, you know, what are we going to do about this? You know, I really need to go see the endocrinologist now. I've had my doctor send in, you know, my gender dysphoria letter. And she tells me, you're never going to take hormones as long as I'm the warden at this prison. And I kind of look at her like, this has to be, is this a joke? Like, is she serious? And she was so serious. But before she uh, left the prison, I actually did start hormones. And she got mad because I walked up to her on the walk. And I was like, you know, I just wanted to tell you I have started already. And she's like, you know, keep talking to me. You're going to lockdown. And in my mind, I'm like, I really don't care because I already don't start it. It doesn't matter now. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was a win for me. 
a huge win and yes. amazing on fighting that fight. And I'm sure paving the way for others to come. And at the same time, I mean, years of, of fighting to be able to get the treatment that you needed. Yes. And then there was another story that you shared with me that I would love for you to share just about once you actually got to that point of, okay, now you've been fighting for all of this time and you've finally gotten access to the treatment and people aren't reading the paperwork and they've put you in solitary, but you're finally able to access the treatment. Can you share a little bit about what that experience is, was like for you in terms of actually going to get your injections? Yes. To go and get my injections, I had to go to the medical building of the prison and at first, they wanted me to take my shot out in front of everybody, which there's two nurses behind uh, the little plexiglass windows. And they wanted me to actually drop my pants in the line and get my shot. And I'm like, hey, you know, you can't give it to me in my arm. It's an intermuscle injection. You have to give it to me, you know, like in a muscle area, like my behind or my thigh. And they're like, no, you're going to drop your pants. I'm like, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that. So we went back and forth about that. Then they tried to give it to me in a shower area, which is in the back of the medical building. And it was like, you, you guys, you don't have no respect for me and my person. Like, you want me to literally just drop my pants and it's people walking by that's being treated or, you know, people coming to get medicine or whatever it is. And I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I had to, I actually had to file like several grievances on the medical staff because of how they treated me and it had got to the point to where the nurse that would administer my shot she actually told me one day that you know i just think you're better off without it because i liked you the way you were and i'm looking at her like i only ever seen you maybe two or three times and that's when i came for you know my uh chronic care checkup which is like every like maybe once a year <laughs> which is weird <laughs> but only seeing you then and we don't have any kind of you know interactions like we don't talk i come in you know the doctor checks me you know checks my asthma makes me blow into this thing you standing over there taking notes me you never talk so you can't tell me you like me you know how i am and i was like you know your opinion is not going to change me or what i have going on so she would purposely stabbed me literally stabbed me like she didn't just you know give me the shot she would like stab me to where it bled and the medicine would come out and it would mess up my clothes a lot of the times so i ended up filing a grievance on her and she got fired <laughs> because that was definitely that definitely needed to happen because she didn't have any respect for other people i mean the way she would talk to other uh, inmates and the way she handled me in my situation was just terrible because at some point you have to know how to you know set your personal feelings and opinions aside and be professional in the work setting and that was something she was not able to do mm -hmm. well thank you for sharing all of that and so eventually through this period there's as you kind of mentioned earlier there's this camp free kai campaign going on which ends up being successful and you were released only recently right yes um july of last year july 21st okay july 21st of 2020 yes and can you tell us about that moment 
when you were released? Like the doors open, you get to walk out. What was that like for you? Honestly, it was like, it was great, but they tried to make it to where it was terrible <laughs> because my mom and my mom, my niece were waiting for me in the parking lot. And one of my friends, which is a person that I met when I was uh, locked up who had started emailing me and we had, you know, built the friendship and he, you know, him and his wife tagged along to, you know, see me come home. And, you know, as I'm coming out of one set of gates, coming to another set of gates, the officer's like, well, they can put their phones up because they can't take no pictures, you know, in the parking lot. And I'm just looking at her like, what? I'm like, I don't care about that. Just let me go out the gate. I'm trying to get to my mom. So they open the other gate and my mom and my niece are standing on top of this hill because I had to run up the hill to get to them. And I'm just like, it's over. Let's get out of here. They was like, you want to eat? I'm like, don't worry about it. Keep the food. Let's just go. Like, I wasn't worried about eating. That, and that was the first thing I used to tell them. I was like, whenever I come home, I want all this food. But I got in the car and it was a ton of food in the car. And I didn't want anything. I was like, just get me away from here. <laughs> get me as far away from here as possible. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you have that moment and you you get as far away as possible. And what since then has the reentry process been like for you? I mean, what are some of the challenges? And it's a it's a lot of challenges, actually, um, as far as jobs and housing, you know, insurance, doctor visits is it's all very terrible, which I have a dentist appointment tomorrow. But they tell me they can't, they don't accept my insurance, uh, what I got. So I was like, good, really need to get this teeth pulled. <laughs> so I'm probably going to have to pull it myself. I'm not <laughs> too happy about it, but I might have to. But it, it's like, you know, since I've been home, I've maybe had 10 to 15 jobs, possibly more. <laughs> not really sure at this point, but I will get a job. I'll work all the, you know, all my hours, all the extra hours that they want me to work. And for no apparent reason, you know, I either get called to the office or get called on a day that I'm supposed to come in. And they're like, you know, um, just don't come. Or when you get here, come to the to the main office. And I get to the main office and I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but we're letting you go. And I'm thinking in my head, like, why you're not giving me any reason why and then i ask and they never tell me why and I, I at first it would really upset me because it's like you know when i filled out my application i was completely honest with you from the beginning so i didn't lie and say you know i've never been arrested or you know convicted i was completely honest even in the interview process i was completely honest so then i'm thinking in my head is it because i'm transgender like, what is the actual issue behind why, you know, I get a job, I do all the work and some kind of way I still have to, you know, go through this where either I'm being harassed on the job and then I get fired <laughs> because I won't put up with the bullying. I had a supervisor uh, bully me. He would, you know, follow me around and be like, hey, Ken, hey, dude, sir, uh, lady, uh, uh, you, whatever it is. And I'm just looking at him like, you think that's okay to say to another person? Like, why? Like, 
and I get upset because I feel like people should understand, you know, that no matter what color we, we are, you know, what we believe in, our pre- sexual preference, none of that should matter because people should think about it. At the end of the day, we're all people. Mm-hmm. Before anything else, we're all human. Before anything else, before you, your race, your sex, before any of that, you're a person first. Mm-hmm. And people need to, you know, need to think about it. Like I had issues with housing because the guy that I rented from, he broke into my apartment. Um, I was in Florida on a trip uh, with BGR. I was doing an event with them and I get a call from my mom telling me that, you know, all my stuff is knocked over and she don't know what's missing. So I'm, I'm at this working event and I'm panicking because I'm like, what, what is missing? And she doesn't, she doesn't know because she, you know, she didn't live with me. So it's like, it was, it was terrible. And it was like on the whole, uh, plane ride back home, I was so scratched out. Like, Oh my God, I'm gonna go home and I, I don't have any clothes. I'm, I'm not going to have anything, which I did have stuff left, but it was just like, it was, it was terrible. And then I got kicked out. So you still for me. And then you kicked me out of the apartment. And then I moved into another apartment with the friend who got kicked out because I was pretty much living at the apartment at the time. And the neighbors decided to lie and say that I was a child molester or something. And I'm thinking in my head, like, I'm I'm really, I'm really pissed at this point because I'm like, are you serious? Like, do you know who I am and what I've been through? Why would I do anything like that? And it, it was, it was so terrible because the landlady of the apartment she called us to tell us about the complaints and when she tell us i'm just looking at her like are you serious like i have my you know parole paperwork and it says nothing about anything that you just said and i was at that point you know i just started to kind of look at people different Mm -hmm. because through all that you know I had people letting the air out of my tires, all kinds of stuff. And I didn't let that make me bitter. You know, I was angry for a while, but I had to get over it because people are just going to be people. Mm-hmm. And some people just react in those kind of ways. And they do things and they, you know, they don't have any actual evidence or any, any truth to it. But people will react out of fear and ignorance faster than they will than hearing the truth about something. Yeah. And I I quickly just sort of want to go back because you talked about some of the harassment that you've experienced in the workplace. And I know that you were telling me earlier as well about about harassment that you experienced around your choice of restroom. Yes. That was the worst, though. It's like you can't expect me. Okay. Look at me. Okay. Let's let's move this for a second. You see now. Any, and you got to think about it. I'm living in the deep south. So these good old southern ladies, you can't expect me to go into a female's restaurant. Yeah. And that just is going to be everyone. dangerous for the people in the restroom and for myself because, you know, people are going to look and, oh, what is he doing here? And it's going to it's it's going to be terrible. So I, I, I never use the uh, female's restroom. Yeah, and for everyone who can't see us right now, I am looking at a man. <laughs> so <laughs> when you say just look at me, it's because 
anyone who would look at you would see a man walking into a lady's restroom. Yes. And yeah, what you say is so true about that fear. And just, I know that living in the South, I, I can't say I know because I've never lived in the South, but I have been, and I understand and recognize that all of these issues are so exacerbated. Now, in addition to some of these challenges, I know there have also been some happy things that have happened in your life recently. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes. <laughs> um. Well, I got married on May 8th. I don't need to forget that. If I get that, I'm never going to live that down. <laughs> yeah, I got married on May 8th, and it was, like, it was small. It was at the house, and it was only um, her parents, my parents, the kids, two of my nieces, or maybe it was all the girls. I can't remember. Uh, but it was, like, very small, just family. And um, two of my friends uh, were here. And one actually performed the service. <laughs> so it was a very small thing. And I was, I don't know, I, I tried not to cry, but I did a little bit. But I was just so happy because I finally found someone who, you know, like totally understands me. And in addition, you've also started a really incredible organization, Freedom Overground. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. Okay. So Freedom Overground actually started, I'm going to say by accident, because I originally, well, it wasn't supposed to happen when it happened. You know, it was supposed to be something I'd done when I came home. But the way it happened was um, my friend who was at one point incarcerated with me, we had talked about it and was like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And, you know, she goes home before me and I'm still inside. So I'm needing more and more information about the surgeries, more and more information on, you know, filing agreements because, you know, I was still getting harassed. This is when I was in prison. So, um, you know, she would send, she would go look it up, spend hours looking it up. She would send me envelopes like with this much paper in it and it's whatever it is I need. There would be tons of copies. So, you know, she would send me all the information in and, you know, I would have uh, guys that I had knew for a long time, you know, since I had been in uh, the prison. Like, so, um, I mean, like, what do I need to do? I, I mean, I was like, okay, well, I can't really explain all of it to you because, you know, I'm not that good at explaining stuff. So I was like, you know, my friend, one day we're going to start this up. So I would just pretty much give them, give them her information. So he contact her. And then that that's pretty much kind of how it started because we had planned on doing it, you know, when I got out. But then it kind of happened while I was, you know, inside. She, you know, got the 401c3. So it's a nonprofit. So she got all that done. But we pretty much give like resources uh, to people that are incarcerated, trans people that are incarcerated and pretty much everybody on the LGBTQIA spectrum. I, every time I say that, I always get tripped up because it's like, okay, am I missing the letter? But like to, you know, we give support while they're inside any uh, information as far as hormones, um, gender affirming clothing, grievances, appeals, help with any kind of uh, medical information. And once they're released, we have a program, a reentry program. So when they're released, they receive a book bag with 
It has a prepaid cell phone with minutes on it. They receive resource pack, which has all the information as far as healthcare, you know, what is available to them. That's how I actually got my insurance, but it doesn't work everywhere. But in that, that guide, it pretty much gives you everything it is that you need. It can pretty much plug you into the different housing places and other things like that. And with that, also they get a binder for the trans guys, get binders and work boots, still toe work boots. Because in Georgia, you know, honestly, the most jobs you're going to get is either warehouse jobs or something outside. So having the steel toe boots is very important. And it was a few other things that come in there, but I can't think of them at the moment. But uh, we just try to, you know, we try to do that because our goal, our actual goal is to one day to pretty much put ourselves out of business. And when I say that, I mean by you give you give the support while they're inside. And if you can't, you know, if people connect with us while they're out before it even gets to that point and we can do some type of uh, prevention you know, we try to do that. But our main thing right now is we're working with those people that are inside. Um, we're trying to get them plugged in with whoever it is that they need to be. Um, we have a program called Seven Pillars. It has a mental health. We're currently working on the housing situation on that because, you know, it's, it's a lot of uh, places, apartments and different things in Atlanta and the people that own them. And I just learned this. The people that own them don't want to sell them. So that's why they're having to build more uh, more buildings, because the people are just pretty much sitting on that land and don't want to sell it. So mm-hmm. we actually have a, a, a housing program, a mental health program. Um, we have a financial uh, financial literacy program. So it's a bunch of uh program so we pretty much went with other organizations to kind of build and you know get people to where they need to be so if it's something that we don't do ourselves we can pretty much link them with someone who actually who does that whose organization is dedicated to that specific thing it's incredible i mean it sounds like almost all of the issues that you faced and the challenges that you faced building the supports so that other people don't encounter those same challenges that you did yes because it's it's very you know it's very hard you know uh coming home and not really having any support and you know not really being too sure of like what your next move is going to be but knowing that you know it's things that you have to do now because when i was released i was placed on a parole and probation well that comes after the parole part i think but being placed on that you know they expected me to find a job to get my license back to um take these classes to report to pay the money to them and there was so many things that i had to do just for them not including the things that i wanted to do on my own and it was just like you know where am i going to how am i going to have the time to do all of this you know be in all these different places so with The programs that we offer at Freedom Overground, we're pretty much, you know, helping out. So my actual business partner is in the Atlanta area. So if a person gets out and they're in that area and they need help or a ride to an interview, then she's willing to, you know, take them to the interview. Or if they need help writing a resume, I was pretty good at that. So, you know, it's a lot of things that that we do. My current job title is executive director which is like, that's just too much work. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, 
the most that I do now is I, I send out emails to the individuals that's incarcerated. Um, if they need someone to attempt to reach out to their family or they're having issues within the prison, then I would, you know, make calls to the prison and see what it is that they could do to try to fix it. We also send them stamps on JPay and make sure they have phone minutes so they could, you know, uh, call us if, you know, they need to or call their family. So fantastic. What can your average person who's listening to this podcast do to improve the experience for returning citizens? And particularly, I think, for, you know, given your experience from for returning citizens from the transgender and gender nonconforming communities? I would say for them to just pretty much be supportive because honestly, you know, getting out and not having any type of support, you know, that is one of those things that will actually, I guess you could say, cause a person to reoffend or mm -hmm. be put into a situation to where, you know, they have to do something that they wouldn't normally do if they had, you know, some kind of support because a lot of people that I noticed that return to prison, return to prison because they can't find any jobs or any housing or any type of support uh, when they come home. So that turns them to sex work, to it turns them, you know, to uh, stealing drug, you know, selling drugs or whatever it is just to be able to survive. So it's and people don't realize that that's like, you know, that instinct, that survival instinct kicks in for certain people. And if they've never had a job, they never, you know, completed school or didn't you know, don't know how to write a, a resume, don't know how to, you know, conduct an actual job interview. And that's going to be hard for that person to come back out, you know, come back on the outside from being inside and trying to learn to function as a, a normal person, you would say. Because they're like, you know, normal people, we work, we do this, we do that. But my thing is there is no normal anymore. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not a normal because, you know, the crazy thing is, you can say that once you're incarcerated and you come home, you're automatically labeled. You're labeled a felon or an offender once mm -hmm. you come home. And those labels, you know, a lot of people, they hear that, you know, oh, you've been arrested. And they look at you as if you're just the scum of the earth. You're just terrible. You know, like you being around them is going to somehow infect them or something. And it's like, are you serious? Like, and people have to, you know, people need to know, like, you have to give people a chance and you have to be willing to, you know, listen to a person and talk to a person because a lot of people coming home from prison do have PTSD, do suffer from a lot of issues because it is very traumatizing being in that type of setting. So once you come out, if you don't have access to any kind of therapy, then it's just going to be all bad for you because that's something that I'm still struggling with myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on the, the whole therapy thing, but it's just something that needs to happen. So people need to know that, you know, once a person is out, you need to be supportive in any way that you can. If it's, you know, trying to help them find a job or giving them a job, you know, if you're in a position to do so, that that mm -hmm. would be very helpful to that person. And you would pretty much help to build the community versus breaking it down because people always say, 
you know, that, oh, you know, we want to build a community. Things are, you know, all bad right now. But it, it's it's ways that you can you can build a community. It's ways that you can, you know, improve not just, you know, your standard of living, but another person by, you know, helping to give them that one up because they already have so much on them. The stipulations from the courts, the trauma from, you know, being in, in, incarcerated. So they have so much on them by you, you know, providing them with help, you know, to find a job or giving them a job or helping them in whatever way it is. You know, that's pretty much letting them know that, hey, you're not alone, because when you come from being in that kind of situation, you really think that you're alone and that nobody cares. And sometimes that is the case for some people. But let's all try to make it better for those people once they come out. Yeah. So you talked about the the label, which is something that I kind of like to come back to in each episode. This label, the, you know, criminal, felon, offender. So if you could rip off that label and instead write on it, something like I think of the label as almost like a name tag that you're wearing all the time and it's mm -hmm. just there for everybody to see and but there's so much more to who you are what do you actually if you can rip off that name tag and put something else on it that's what you want people to see when they're meeting you what do you want it to say you know I never really thought about it like that because I I tend to stay away from labels and and you know that so but if I had to if I had to change that label, what would I want it to say? Resilient. Mm. I mean, that, that's the only thing I can think of at the mm -hmm. moment, because yeah. no matter what comes my way, I'm going to I'm going to snap back. It's not going to mm -hmm. it's not going to keep me down. I'm going to keep moving forward. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And because I the, the thing I think about labels is, you know, we all have them and we have the negative ones and we have the positive, we have the positive ones. Right. And yes. so it's almost like, what are the labels that you want to embrace and say, this is who I am. And I really, I love resilient and you are. Thank you. So Kai, where can people find you and support you? Okay. Um, let's see. I had to wrote down because this is a lot of stuff. I actually have a, a Patreon account, and that's where I display my art because I draw from time to time. Well, now I'm painting, but, you know, I do that. Um, and the way to access that is K period M Peterson at Patreon.com. Um, okay. So what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Kai Peterson 5. K-Y Peterson 5. Amazing. Like everything is pretty much listed in my bio. All my other social media information is all listed on that Twitter. Awesome. And Kai is very active on Twitter, so you can all go and follow him. I have to stay active. People want, you know, people want to know what's going on. And I go on sometimes just to kind of see what's going on in the world because the crazy thing is, you know, in prison, you watch the news all the time because the older people wants to watch the news all day, all night. So since I've been home, I actually don't actually look at the news news because it's like it's always depressing. You know, somebody got shot or, you know, kids are missing. It's like it's all depressing and sad. You don't really see too much good happening on the news. So I try to stay away from it. But I can go on Twitter and I can see tweets and I can reply to something or I can post my own. So I, I 
No, I do stay up there a lot sometimes. Totally. It's a great way to get the news. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, thank you so much, Kai, for joining us. I really, I I cold reached out to Kai on Twitter and said, I've seen your tweets and I'm seeing your story and I would love to speak to you. And thank you for responding to my, uh, to this, you know, uh, tweet from an unknown woman in Canada. And <laughs> it's been a real pleasure getting to know you and to speak with you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.